0: Uh, could you turn with me, please, to uh, 1 Peter, chapter 2? 1 Peter, chapter 2, and we're looking at uh, verses 4 to 10. It's on page 857. Uh, and you'll need the other thing you'll need you'll have, need your Bible open page 857 and there's a outline that you received as you came in uh, that'll be helpful as well so have that there so you can see where we're going and I will lead us in prayer and we'll start let's pray our Father we thank you that uh, we are your people thank you that uh, uh, you have saved us by your grace We thank you that we are your temples with your spirit. And we thank you that uh, uh, all this is uh, um, just through your kindness, Lord. Father, as we study your word today, we pray that you help us to realize more and more uh, who we really are in Christ, um, and therefore uh, learn to live our lives uh, more and more in a way that reflects that. We pray in Jesus' name. As you can see from your outlines, our sermon today is entitled A Strange People. And following Mark's precedence from last week, I thought I would start by showing you photographs of some people who are very strange indeed. Let's have a look at some of them. Uh, and we have some more. Yep. And here's the strangest one. One Peter, though, is talking about a different kind of strangeness, isn't it? Uh, You may recall from previous weeks that Peter is writing to Christians in a place which is now called Turkey. And in the introduction to his letter, he calls them elect strangers. As far as God is concerned, they and we are elect. We are chosen by God. But as far as the world is concerned, we are strangers. We are different. We don't really belong. We have a strange identity. Uh, two weeks ago, Mark took us through uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3-12 to 12, And we saw that we were born again into a living hope Through the resurrection of Christ from the dead And we have a great inheritance waiting for us in heaven And God is keeping us by faith for that inheritance And keeping that inheritance for us Which gives us hope as we face the various trials of life Which is of course different from people in the rest of the world and so we saw we have a strange hope. And last week he opened up for us Mark chapter one, verse uh, sorry, one Peter chapter one, uh, verse thirteen to chapter two, verse three, and we saw that setting our minds on that hope would lead us to a changed way of living. We were to be holy, set apart, because God is holy. We have a Father who judges impartially, and so we're to live as strangers in this world in reverent fear. And we're to love each other deeply from the heart to get rid of the evil that will spoil our relationships and crave the pure spiritual milk of God's word and so we'll have a strange lifestyle in this passage Peter gives us more of what it is of who we are in Christ as a strange people and the way he does it is by emphasizing the corporate nature of our identity. Because we're not just a collection of individuals who are born again and have our mind set on heaven, we are a people. We are, as we sang, God's people. And so Peter wants us to understand what being God's people means, and then he's going to explain later how to live as a community of God's people in the world. Because always, who we are determines what we do. And so Peter talks in this passage about us as God's people And he does it in two parts In the first part from uh, verses 4 to 8 he uses the metaphor of stones Uh, Jesus Christ he says in verse 4 is the living stone In verses 5 and 6 he talks about how this stone uh, relates to all believers In verses 7 to 8 he talks about how the stone relates to unbelievers And he does that in a way that helps him bring out a very important point, which we will look at, about our corporate identity and function. And then in the second part, from verses 9 to 10, he hammers home that corporate identity and function. Tells us directly who we are as a people, and why God has brought us together. So that's roughly how Peter structures his argument, and you can see from the outline that's, that's how we're going to be tackling it as well. Now, Peter starts by calling Jesus the living stone. In verse 4, he says that he is the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. Or you could translate it, honored by him. Jesus was rejected by men. The Jewish leaders had him killed. A Roman governor executed him. Rejected by men, but he was chosen by God verse 19 and 20 of chapter 1 says he was chosen before the foundation of the world to be the lamb without blemish or defect the one who would die as a sacrifice for our sins rejected by men but chosen by God and honored by him for God raised him from the dead exalted him as the Lord and the the King of all so Jesus is rejected by men chosen by God and honored by him but what has this got to do with stones? well verse 6, Peter gives us a quote from the Old Testament about something else that is chosen and precious or honored. Verse 6, he says, for in scripture it says See, I lay a stone in Zion a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now that's a quote from Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. And in Isaiah 28 God was, was going to bring punishment on his people. And he was going to overwhelm them like a flood. And they'd made some kind of bargain to cheat death. Some kind of deal to dodge the grave. And they felt secure in that. And they, uh, But you know, that, that wasn't going to stop God's judgment on them. And yet God says there's a place that they could be secure. Only one place that would not be shaken. And God said he was laying a stone in Zion, in Jerusalem. The, the capital city of God's people and in Zion he was laying a stone which would be a foundation stone that was safe to build on and God was saying in Isaiah don't trust your schemes don't trust your bargains trust in my cornerstone it's chosen and precious if you build on that stone if you believe in him you will never be put to shame when the judgment comes you'll be okay Peter says, Jesus is that stone. When God comes in judgment, there's only one place to be. And that's trusting in Jesus. There's only one structure that will not collapse in the flood of God's judgment. The structure that's built on Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. He's saying just now, isn't that? My cornerstone, my solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. The only place to take refuge when the judgment comes is in him. But what is a cornerstone? What does a corner have to do with it? Well a cornerstone is the first stone to be laid down in a building, at least when they were building buildings in those days, particularly the temple. Uh, and it was a stone that gave alignment to the whole building. So you put the cornerstone there and then all the other stones come from there and there and there. All comes up from the alignment of that of that cornerstone, you see? And so it had to be perfect because the rest of the building was built around this stone It set the configuration for the, for the whole building and every other stone in the building would have to be aligned to the cornerstone so the cornerstone has to be very carefully chosen we not just have any old stone as a cornerstone it would have to be in a sense it was honoured because it was the most important stone in the building and the cornerstone position was the most important place Bible says, Peter says that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone it's the most important one it's the one that the whole building must be aligned to having a cornerstone implies having a building, isn't it? you wouldn't have a cornerstone, you know a building and the point of the cornerstone is that you're building a building but what is the building that Peter's talking about? and if Jesus is the cornerstone then what's the rest of the stones that make up the building? Well, we're going to see that the building is a temple. And the rest of the stones are people who believe in Jesus. And so we're now on our second subpoint the stone and believers. Back to verse 4 again. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Coming to him, beginning of verse 4 means believing in him, is taking refuge in him that fits the context, it fits the context of what's ahead, that uh, reference to Isaiah in verse 6 that we've looked at because it's about trusting in him, taking refuge in him in light of the judgment to come, and it also fits the context of what's behind, because if you look at the previous verse, in uh, verse 3 it says, now you have tasted the Lord is good which is a quote from Psalm 33 verse 8 which says, taste and see that the Lord is good, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him it fits both ways coming to Christ means taking refuge in Christ means trusting Christ means relying on Christ and Christ alone to save us from the judgment of God and so Peter is saying in verse 4 as you come to Christ as you trust in Christ you are like living stones when you put your faith and trust in Jesus you are like a stone that is added to the building which started with Jesus as the cornerstone and as more and more people around the world put their faith in Jesus the building that is built on Christ is being built up, stone by stone by stone what is that building? it's a spiritual house a place where God dwells by his spirit invisible temple a place verse 5 to be for, for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ now now Peter's mixing his metaphors here now isn't he right? Because not only are we the temple But we're also the priests Offering sacrifices Not just a few of us but, but all of us who trust in Jesus Now What are these sacrifices I mean we know that Sacrifices for sin are no more Are no more sacrifice for sin because Jesus was sacrificed once and for all Oh, that's why even these spiritual sacrifices that are, that are offered are acceptable to God, it says, through him. Even in the Old Testament, the sin offering comes first, then the other sacrifices. And Jesus and his death has, has completely settled that. Sacrifice for sin has been made once and for all. So what are these spiritual sacrifices that Peter is talking about? Peter doesn't define them clearly here he'll give us a good hint down in verse 9 which we'll get to but let me first say what it cannot mean it cannot mean crops and animals you know, offered on an altar like the Old Testament sacrifices because the sacrifices as Peter's talking about are spiritual sacrifices not ritual ones the sacrifices offered spiritually in worship to God so what are they? Well, there's a couple of other places in the New Testament where these spiritual sacrifices are explained so what we're going to do is we're going to go off we're going to have a look at them and then we'll, in light of what we see there we're going to come back to 1 Peter and see if that fits one, with what, what 1 Peter has to say alright so the first one is in Romans chapter 12 verse 1 so if you keep a bit of paper or something in, uh, in uh, 1 Peter and flick with me to Romans it's on page 803 page 803 Romans chapter 12 And verse 1 he says Therefore I urge you brothers In view of God's mercy To offer your bodies As living sacrifices Holy and pleasing to God This is your spiritual act of worship Paul, said, Paul says we're to, to offer our bodies As a living sacrifice to God That's that's a sacrifice we offer And we go on to read the rest of Romans 12 We, we, we see the workings of this you know, Just skim it together It means in verse 2 That we have a renewed mind Let's see things from God's point of view From his priorities It means uh, in verses 3 to 8 That we're playing our part in the body now, Serving God's people with the gifts that he's given us It means verse 9 Uh, That we are uh, loving, sincerely Hating what is evil Clinging to what is good Verse 10, honoring one another Practicing hospitality Verse 13 Uh, It means verse 17 Not taking revenge It means chapter 13 Verse 1 to 7 Submitting to authorities Obeying the laws Paying our taxes Chapter 13 verse 9 It means obeying the commandments Loving our neighbours ourselves 13 verse 13 it's it's behaving decently rather than sinfully see as New Testament priests worship involves every part of our lives all our relationships relating in and outside the body and as living sacrifices we offer our bodies and that entails all these different things that our bodies do there's Romans let's have a look at Hebrews Hebrews chapter twelve and thirteen, so you can skip leave Romans, uh, keep the thing keep the book in the, the thing in one Peter, but go across to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter twelve, and uh, we'll start at verse twenty-eight. Page eight five three. Page eight five three. and Look at what it says there. Therefore since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken Let us be thankful And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe For our God is a consuming fire and To worship God acceptably with reverence and awe And what, how is this worship expressed? We keep on reading Remember there's no chapter breaks in the original Just keep on reading Chapter 13 verse 1 Loving each other as brothers Verse 4 Honoring marriage Verse 5, avoiding the love of money and being content with what we have. Verse 7, remembering our leaders. Verse 9, not getting carried away with false teaching. Verse 13, being willing to suffer disgrace for Christ. And just in case we're tempted to think that the writer of the Hebrews actually left the topic of worship and gone off to something else here. Verse 15, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise the fruit of lips that confess his name and do not forget to do good and to share with others for with such sacrifices God is pleased what are the sacrifices sacrifice of praise it means advertising telling people how good God is speaking about God to others how you praise someone you say how good he is telling someone else how good he is and what? doing good sharing with others, giving to those in need and these are the sacrifices the writer of the Hebrews says God is pleased with and all those other things in between now in light of what we've seen in in Romans Hebrews let's go back to 1 Peter we go back to 1 Peter then we notice the same pattern Peter's been telling us about offering spiritual sacrifices in this passage and when you read the rest of the book, you see that, well, those are actually the things that they, what they are. Many of them have things in common with, with the worship of ex, and sacrifice expressions in, 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 uh, in Hebrews and Romans. And so in verse 9 of chapter 2, being a royal priest is about what, declaring God's praises. In verse 11, uh, we're to abstain from sinful desires. Verse 13 onwards is submitting to those in authority. Chapter 3, verse 8. Living in harmony with each other, in love. Chapter 4, verse 3, avoiding sinful behavior. Chapter 4, verse 9, practicing hospitality. Chapter 4, verse 10, using whatever gifts we have to serve the body. Chapter 4, verse uh, 12 to 19, being willing to suffer for being a Christian. Does that sound familiar? Same thing that Romans and Hebrews are talking about, too, was not it? We are to offer spiritual sacrifices. Not in the ritual way, like in the Old Testament times. But it's spiritual sacrifices of lives, of love, and service, and obedience. And that's what true Christian worship is about. Not sacrifices and rituals on the one hand. Not simply singing an emotion on the other, although it can involve that. It's about living a whole lives to the glory of God. Peter wants us to know God's people we are living stones being built into a spiritual house temple for us as a holy priesthood to offer these spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And These sacrifices are what we do in our day to day lives as we relate to each other and as we relate to the world. now in the next section Peter takes that stone theme uh-huh. and he shows how it applies to unbelievers now back in 1 Peter chapter 2 and there are two parts of the Old Testament that he uses here first one in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 7 he says now to you who believe this stone is precious but to those who do not believe the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone or as the footnote says a cornerstone which actually I think the better translation the stone the builders rejected has become a cornerstone now the end of verse 7 is a quote from Psalm 118 verse 22 and Psalm 118 is a psalm that's either about Israel personified or or God's promised king Uh, but the person the psalm is talking about is someone who trusts God rather than man and even though his enemies look like they're, uh, they're going to defeat him God suddenly rescues him And there's great rejoicing And the psalmist says The stone the builders rejected Has become the cornerstone Then he says The Lord has done this And it's marvellous in our eyes See the picture is That of a building site All the stones there All ready to be built into the house And the stones pick up And the builders pick up a stone And ah, no good, throw it away It's not good enough to be Part of the house even And yet somehow or other that stone becomes the cornerstone, which we saw as the most important one. Now, that would be very surprising, wouldn't it? It's like someone being sacked for being incompetent in the sales department and then being appointed the CEO of the company. It's bizarre. It's unthinkable. How could a stone that builders discard as being unworthy now become the the key stone in the house? All the psalmist says the Lord has done this. That's marvelous in our eyes. My friends we know the psalm was pointing forward to Jesus He was both the true Israel Israel's promised king Despised and rejected by Israel Crucified Executed by man Rejected And yet God raised him from the dead Exalted him as Lord and King of all Made him the center of all his plans and purposes for the world the stone the builders rejected It's become the cornerstone It's the Lord's doing marvelous in our eyes. But why is Peter telling us this? Well remember he's talking about the relationship between stone and unbelievers. And he says that those who reject Jesus are like those builders. Verse 7 again. But to those who do not believe the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. See the builders, they rejected that stone which was really the best stone of the building, which is another cornerstone, but they threw it away and, uh, and they the shown up as wrong. They're incompetent at judging stones. And loss of face for a builder, isn't it? It's embarrassing. And friends, Jesus Christ is the most important person we could ever deal with in life and in death. And we have to deal with him. Don't be like the people of his day who despised him. Don't be like the religious leaders who, who rejected him. Don't, don't throw him away, for he really is the cornerstone in God's house. He's the most important one. If you show, and if you, you reject him, then you'll be shown to be very wrong. In fact, if you continue to reject him, he will in fact become your downfall. Verse eight: He will be a stone that causes men to stumble. And a rock that makes them fall. Now here's another stone quotation that Peter gets from the Old Testament. Yeah. Oh, lots. Of, this is all from the Old Testament, isn't it? Right. Uh, this time it's from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14. Uh, Isaiah is talking about God himself. And, and God is warning the prophet Isaiah not to be like the people of his country. Because what the people of his country feared the most was invasion by Assyria. Uh, the superpower of their day, and that was threatening them. And this is what God says. He says, the Lord Almighty is the one you ought to regard as holy. He's the one you ought to fear. He's the one you ought to dread. And he will be a sanctuary. But for both the houses of Israel, he will be a stone that causes men to stumble. And a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. See, on the one hand, God will be a refuge, a sanctuary, a place where you can be safe. Peter's talked about that already, hasn't he? On the other hand, he will be a trap. A snare. stone that makes people stumble. rock that makes them fall. A picture is like a big stone in someone's path. And they don't see it or they don't take any notice of it. And so they walk and up! Oh, they trip over it. Fall down. But crashing down on the stone becomes a trap. A snare. It's not the stone's fault. It's the fault of those who should be looking where they're going. Peter says if we reject Christ he'll be that kind of stone for us. He will not be our refuge be a place where we can be safe he'll be the stone that we trip over. The stone that will cause us to come crashing down. So Peter adds at the end of verse 8 they stumble because they disobey the message which is what they were destined for. Peter's talking about the, the message he's talking about. is that God's command to repent and trust in Jesus. And those who choose to disobey this message will face the judgment of God without the salvation of Jesus. That they will perish. But friends, Peter is very clear that while they are still responsible for their actions, while their choice is a real one, God is still sovereign. And even their refusal to obey God's message was not outside God's plan. They freely chose to disobey the message. They were responsible for their choice. But that's what they were destined to do. Now that's, that's hard for us to understand. and It's harder even for us to accept, isn't it? Right? I know that. But if that's what God tells us in his word, then in the end we have to receive it and trust him. He is just and fair. He knows what he's doing even if we don't. The one thing that we must never, never do is to use predestination as an excuse for inaction or disobedience. Because friends, God's sovereignty never takes away human responsibility. You can't say oh, no point believing because you know God hasn't chosen me for salvation, rather for stumbling. No, no, no. We are responsible for our actions. So if you want to have been chosen by God, obey the gospel message. Believe in Jesus, submit to his rule, and you will find that God has already chosen you. Do the right thing, and you will find that you are chosen to do it. So what have we looked at so far? We've seen that Jesus is the living stone, firm foundation on which we'll be safe when the flood of God's judgment comes. We've seen he's the cornerstone, the most important stone in the temple that God is building with each of us as individual stones in it. And we've seen that this temple is a place for each of us as priests to to offer our lives and work to God in, in gratitude for what he's done for us. We've also seen that the stone has other connotations for those who will continue to reject Jesus. The fact that he's the cornerstone in God's temple shows they're wrong. And the fact that he's the stone that makes men stumble shows that he will be their downfall if they continue to reject his rule. In the final part of our passage, verses 9 to 10, Peter leaves a stone metaphor behind. And he goes straight to the heart of what he's been trying to say. And his main point he's trying to say is you as a group, you as Christians, have been set apart to belong to God in a special way. That's the whole stone building thing, isn't it? You as a people are holy. He touched on it in verse 5 with that building. But now he writes plainly and directly in verse 9. He says this But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. The language that he uses here reminds us of Exodus chapter 19, our, our Old Testament reading, which by François Carney read to us. In Exodus 19, God had saved his people from slavery in Egypt and he was about to bring them to the promised land but first he gathered them at Sinai where he gave them the law and after he saved them before he gave them the law when it got to Sinai this is what he said to them through Moses he said you have seen what I did to the Egyptians you know how I carried you on eagles wings and brought you to myself now if you will obey me and keep my covenant you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples of the earth For all the earth belongs to me And you will be my kingdom of priests My holy nation Sounds familiar? God rescued his people He says to them Look, if you obey me If you keep the law that I gave I'm about to give you You will be my special treasure That is the whole world's mine But you belong to me in a special, personal way You will be my kingdom of priests My holy nation Set apart from everyone else From my service It all depends on whether or not you obey my commandments And we know that Israel didn't obey God's commandments, did they? Within weeks they'd made a golden calf and started worshipping it And the history of their nation shows how they kept on failing Until finally God expelled them from the land he'd given them As he said he would, according to his covenant And God fulfilled all that he'd planned for Israel In the person of Jesus Christ himself who was the perfect human being who obeyed God fully and who was the great high priest the king the holy one the true Israel who embodied all that God's people were meant to be but brothers and sisters God's plan to take a nation for himself still stands we, we saw that in our Acts and our Isaiah series didn't we? Uh, God uh, restored Israel in Jesus and his Jewish believers and that salvation has all been opened to us Gentiles as well And so Peter says to all of us who are in Christ You Are now in Christ A chosen people A royal priesthood A holy nation A people belonging to God But notice the difference Between First chapter of 1 Peter 2 And verse 5 and 6 Of Exodus 19 Do you see the big difference? Exodus 19 says, If you do this, then you will be. But 1 Peter 2 simply says, You are. See, if we are in Christ, we belong to Jesus, no ifs ands or buts, that's what we are. Christ has accomplished it. And in him, we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Now there's another difference as well Israel of old were a chosen race because God made promises to their forefathers And now Peter says to us you Jews and Gentiles you are God's chosen people or literally you are God's chosen race that is whatever race we come from physically that's not important anymore we are a new race a spiritual race not based on our physical birth our ancestry but it's based on rebirth we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead and we are a chosen race born again chosen by God to belong to him from the beginning of time God's chosen people and we are a royal priesthood Jesus Christ is our great high priest and then together we are all priests to his world see the New Testament knows nothing of a separate class of Christians called priests it's not a New Testament concept. Right? That's why in the Anglican Church we don't have any priests, other than the priests of all believers. Right? Some people are laughing. And think, Hang on, Andrew. Uh, you think you got something wrong there? Aren't you a priest in the other sense? Yeah. A pastor like you is called a priest, isn't he? Well, the answer is yes. It's only because of some confusing terminology. Right? Uh, because it's confusing, it's got off the topic. All right? We'll discuss that, and we'll come back to the topic in the New Testament uh, there are leaders in the church right? they are called elders or, or presbyters right? and some of these leaders have the task of leading by preaching and teaching God's word and so Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 17 he says the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honour especially those whose work is preaching and teaching right? directing the affairs of the church preaching, teaching are right? the word." Elder there is the Greek word presbyteros, which is why sometimes it can be translated presbyter. Now in the old English you could contract presbyter to priest, okay? And therefore, that's 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 the, uh, the, the uh, when you see the word priest in the context of the Anglican denomination, that's that's what it's supposed to mean, supposed to mean right? So in the Bible it's what they call presbyters or elders. So, when you hear an Anglican talking about my priest, you can mentally translate that to presbyter. Because that's what it's supposed to mean, presbyter. When you see the word priest in the Bible, that's, that's a completely different word in the Greek altogether. Right? The Greek word translated priest is not presbyteros, but eros. In the Old Testament, we had priests offering sacrifices in the temple, which point to Christ. In New Testament times, there is one great high priest. Jesus Christ who offered himself once and for all And then each of us Royal priesthood who offer our lives And each part of our lives A sacrifice of thanksgiving to God Does that make sense? Can I explain that properly? Okay So like the priests Of the Old Testament All of us are consecrated We're set apart for God's service From the rest of the world As we talked about last week We've made holy Dedicated to him And the person we're dedicated to Is our king And so we are a royal priesthood Serving the royal one The king And although the whole earth belongs to God We belong to him in a special way To be his treasured possession His personal property right? Like in the like in the Old Testament uh, if it, uh, the in Exodus 6 That treasured possession is the king's personal property The whole nation belongs to him But his personal property that's his treasured possession And we are God's treasured possession And so we are a holy nation Set apart Consecrated Made holy for him And for him alone A chosen people A royal priesthood And a holy nation But we all went always that way At the end of our passage Peter once again goes back to Israel's history and he alludes to a passage in the book of the prophet Hosea. In Hosea 1, our God promises, pronounces judgment on his people. He has some pretty scary words in verse 9 of Hosea 1. He says, you are not my people and I'm not your God. Then he speaks of the restoration to come. And he says, in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, they will become called sons of the living God. Or in chapter 2, verse 25, he says, I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Okay. God's rejection of his people Israel because of their sin. Uh, you may remember from our Isaiah series, it's a smaller picture of his rejection of the whole human race because of our sin. Uh, because of Israel's, because like Israel of all, we rebelled against God. and God said, not my people. Like but in Jesus Christ, God has shown us mercy. And we are now being made God's people those who trust in Christ are given mercy and so we see in verse 10 once you were not a people but now you are the people of God once you had not received mercy now you have received mercy so why has God done this? what's his purpose? his plan for us as his chosen people? why have we been given mercy? made a royal priesthood a holy nation a people belonging to him What's what's his goal for us? We'll go back to the second half of verse nine because there it is that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Back in Isaiah God said he was going to save his people from exile in Babylon, it's 43:21 if you're going to check it up at home and he says, he will do that that they may proclaim my praise. And God's rescue of His people from exile—just saw that's a foretaste of that bigger rescue that God was putting into effect through Jesus to save us from sin and death and hell, take us out of darkness into His wonderful light, take lost sinners like us and make us holy. Why? So that we may declare His praises, so that we can tell the world how good God is so we can make His excellence known and we can announce the great things He has done so others too may believe and give Him glory. Because friends, the reason we are a chosen people is ultimately for the glory of God. That is good and right and proper. Because unlike us, God is so good that the glory of God is the highest good so brothers and sisters as a holy nation we are set apart to declare God's glory his goodness to the nations and that must be the highest calling of all we didn't earn it we didn't deserve it but we are a chosen race so we can tell the world how good and how great our God is brothers and sisters Peter has been telling us all these things for a reason. And the reason is he's setting up a framework for those who are in Christ because he's about to go and tell us how to live. And when we read what he says about how we are to live it's going to be tough. It's going to be different. It's going to go against the flow of society and of what we are, what our sinful nature might want. So he's very carefully laying here the groundwork. He wants to see that we're holy, set apart from God and wants to see that our priestly worship is what we do all week in our relationship with God. Each other and the world, not just what we do to God on Sunday mornings, for half an hour, an hour and a half. And Once we've worked out all these things, then we're ready to receive all those practical instructions that he has for us in the next section. Right, so feel free to read on ahead, uh, but God willing, we'll start on that next week. Same time, same church.